Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we're both silviculturists with Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your host for today's show. How was your weekend, Brad? Or more specifically, how I should say, how was making Bacon Fest? Well, first, Greg, you should have been there. It was really fun. <laughs> We processed and smoked, I think about 125 pounds of jerky. Uh, We didn't do, let's see, we did summer sausage, Uh chorizo, Italian sausage, breakfast sausage. It was a, it was a meat palooza. It was good. (laughs) And and, and I think this year, I think it's really actually going to taste very good too. (laughs) This year, (laughs) as opposed to past years where it's it's variable. Let me put it that our, our standards of uh, our quality standards are increasing. Getting higher. Well, that's yeah, it's, good. It's getting higher. So for our listeners who may be wondering what the heck we're talking about, uh, Macon Bacon Fest is just this annual get together of some of our friends where we process the year's deer harvest. It's sort of like a Christmas cookie party, but with venison. Yeah. It, and full disclosure, it, it's actually part of a whole series of get togethers. So we, we do Grocerama. Uh-huh. Uh, we have pheasant palooza. Yeah. Uh, we have smallageddon. So yeah. you can see we're kind of there's a there's a pattern here. But but I should say that this by no mean. I, what's the saying, Greg? We are we underperform as apex predators at these events. So there are often times we are not. Uh, we're we're uh, we're having oatmeal. So let me just put it that way. <laughs> so we're we're not dining on what we've got. We found or or captured. Yeah. You know, it's kind of, it's not what you get. It's just more the, the enjoyment of the process that we have. Exactly. So, yeah, I'll admit it's an odd little set of traditions we have, but always a memorable time is had by all. And actually I can't wait since I wasn't there, but I can't wait to trust uh, some of the, the sausage and other produce. So can't wait for that. And speaking of sausage bread, you know what they say about sausage making. Ah, that laws are like sausage making because you don't want to be there when they're being made, right? Oh, yeah. That, that is kind of where that comes from. I, I forgot <laughs> that. I was thinking differently. I was thinking more silviculture is like sausage making, right? Maybe I'm confusing that, though, with that quote uh, from our friend John Bailey out at Oregon State. I remember he had this saying, silviculture is more like making muffins than cake uh, or something like that. So, yeah. Uh, so where are you going with this one, Greg? Cause I, most of the time I follow right I'm, I'm right behind you, but I'm, you gotta, you're going to have to pull me along on this one. You're going to have to pull me along. Well, my point is, my point is Brad, that silviculture has many variables and no two prescriptions yield the exact same muffin. Uh, yep, yep. So, but on Silvacast, we're always trying to tease out the best available information so that you can produce the best possible muffin or sausage. Follow me. Uh, I, if you ever give me a hard time about my analogies being a stretch, that'll, <laughs> then I'm going to pull this one out of my pocket. But well, today, so thank you, Greg. So today on Silvacast, we're going to tease out the best available information on a topic suggested by multiple listeners the silviculture of woodlands and savannas, or open forests, as they're sometimes called. And our guest has done some fantastic work looking into silviculture methods for the restoration of multiple open forest types across the eastern United States. So today we welcome Dr. John Kabrick, research forester with the U.S. Forest Service Northern Research Station. 
All right. Welcome to Silvercast, John Kabrick. It's good to see you. Thank you. It's great to see you guys. Real pleasure to be on the Silvercast. You guys do such a great job with the Silvercast. It's a pleasure to be a guest here. Wow, we got complimented by a guest, Greg. (laughs) We got to invite John more often. That's a change of pace for us. to sit back and process that for a while. Yeah. John, can you put that in writing? Yeah, and we did. So we did our research and... John, true or false, you have ties to Wisconsin. True. I have all kinds of ties to Wisconsin. Uh, Boy, where do I begin? (laughs) Uh, I did my PhD at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. So I was there from uh, 1991 to 1995. And I worked in uh, northern Wisconsin for my research in what was then the Nicolay National Forest. I did a lot of work on uh, soil spatial variability. It was actually in soil science. And uh, my background is in forestry and soils, but my PhD was in soil science at the University of Wisconsin and got to work in the uh, Northwoods, which was a dream come true for me. I looked at a lot of spatial variability, you know, from uh, usually on drumlin landscapes, uh, mostly in the forest in Florence counties in Northeast Wisconsin. You also have kind of tangential ties to Stevens Point, I correct? I do, I do. So my wife's family moved to Stevens Point in the mid-1980s. My father-in-law is Robert Rogers, yeah. Robert, who, is, who was on the faculty at UWSB. He was uh, taught mensuration and biometrics. Um, boy, and he retired, I think, in 2007. And the last couple of years he was there, he was the uh, associate dean in the College yep. of Natural Resources. Yep. So, yeah. So I have all kinds of forestry connections and all kinds of connections with the state of Wisconsin. So it's a lovely place. Yep. And, and we've, we've, we've worked with Bob Rogers in the past and we, we've really enjoyed him. So it, it's a small world. It is a small world. I, I know you had a rule thinning connection. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yep. oh no, yes. don't bring that up. <laughs> I, I try to re- <laughs> just wait. That's going to be in a podcast in the future. We're going to do oh, it. Good. <laughs> it's going to be big. <laughs> well, Bob Rogers developed the rule thinning when he was working here in Missouri. He used to work for the what was called the North Central Research Experiment Station back then here in Columbia. But he did that work um, mostly when he was with the Forest Service. And he did some of that on the Sinkin Experimental Forest in Southern Missouri. So that's where it has its origins. So uh, when I give tours of the Sinkin Experimental Forest, um, I uh, make sure that the students get a good earful about uh, rule thinning. And we often do a little rule thinning exercise with the students to demonstrate how that works. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I'm also a Stevens Point graduate, and I had Bob as a professor, so, and I'm sure a bunch of listeners probably did as well. I would think that's the case. I think there's, I mean, I know, I know here in Missouri, there are a lot of Point grads that Mm -hmm. work here in the state of Missouri in natural resources. And so I know that, uh, I mean, it's a big program up there, lots of graduates, and I know Bob's had a, a, a major influence on many of them. Yep. So, John, we asked this of pretty much all our guests, um, and we just want to know, how did you get interested in forestry? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. And I think I wanted to be a forester for as long as I can remember. Um, so, gosh, three or four years old, I was even thinking about that sort of thing. A couple of key memories, though, I have about forestry. Uh, when I was in kindergarten, it was Mrs. Whiteside's kindergarten class. She somehow arranged to have the Forest Service 
uh, send information about the Forest Service and about forestry, uh, along with one of those, uh, if you, maybe you remember these little brass Smokey the Bear badges, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. like a Forest Service shield, and they had a little image of Smokey stamped in the middle of it, and it said something like, uh, Smokey's friends don't play with matches or something like that. <laughs> So that was something that really stands out in my memory is getting that badge, getting that information. So I, even at a very early age, I knew what forestry was. I knew about that. So that's uh, that really stands out in my memory as something that's very influential. And then growing up here in Missouri, I grew up here in Columbia, where I'm located now. Um, Missouri's not known for being very progressive in a lot of areas, but in natural resources management and conservation, we're, we're really pioneers and leaders in that arena. And in the 1970s, the design for conservation uh, passed. It was a, what allowed the eighth cent sales tax to support conservation efforts for the Missouri Department of Conservation that really allowed them to expand and uh, do a lot more outreach uh, they developed an outreach and education uh, program as part of that, and it really uh, got the word out about conservation. And I used to get the Conservationist magazine as a young person, and uh, they had stories about what foresters do and how they do their work and what the industry was. And so that was very influential as well. So I knew pretty early on I wanted to be in forestry. And so now the now you're in Missouri with the Northern Research Station, which is it must be a really big research station if it reaches Missouri and it's called Northern. That's right. The Northern has the footprint um, that stretches from Minnesota down to Missouri, east to Massachusetts and up to Maine. So it's sort of the same footprint as the Forest Service Region 9, sort of the 20 state Midwest and Northeast combined. Yeah. But yes, I work in the Central Hardwood Region, which you know really is, spans both the Northern and the Southern research stations. And a lot of our research is collaborative with uh, folks in the Southern Research Station. So people like Marty Spedich in Arkansas, Tara Kaiser in uh, North Carolina, Callie Schweitzer in, in Northern Alabama. So we do all that together uh, collaboratively. Yeah, and I even do research in Wisconsin. Hey, we're happy. We're all over. We're, yep. we're all about trying to lure people up to Wisconsin or back up to Wisconsin. So oh, you, feel sure. free. <laughs> Come on up. Sounds great. So down in Missouri, can you tell us a little bit about what the focus of your research is? Yeah. So my area is, since I have degrees in both forestry and soil science, I, I really like to span that interface of, of forestry and silviculture and uh, soil science and site information and how site influences uh, not just species composition, but but processes in forests. So uh, how does how does soil and sites affect regeneration processes, stand development processes, and the silviculture, and also even the responsive silvicultural systems? So um, uh, you know you might do a selection harvest, or or you might implement a shelterwood harvest uh, as a regeneration method but the outcome of it may differ depending on the soils and site types. And so those, those are the kinds of things that really excite me. So my research is primarily in silviculture and forest soils, but I really like how they inter- interface or interact with each other. And that's been sort of my primary area that I've worked in. Um, and over the years, I've worked on a variety of, of 
topics that are related to that. So I've, I've done a lot of work in bottomland hardwood restoration and bottomland hardwood management. And most of that requires understanding things about hydrology site and how that's mm-hmm. influencing not only species selection, but how they, how they grow and how well they will do and how they will compete with each other. Of course, I've done a lot of work in Oprah generation uh, and recruitment uh, in a variety of uh, sites of varying quality from Xeric sites to music sites. Mm-hmm. I've worked on shortly pine restoration, especially as it relates to pine oak mixtures. And the last few years, I've actually gotten uh, to know and work with a group of international scientists working in Canada and the United States on mixed wood ecology and silviculture. Uh, mixed woods being mixtures of hardwoods and softwoods. And, you know, I deal specifically with oak pine mixtures here, but, you know, they might include spruce fir and other hardwood mixtures farther north, hemlock and hardwood like in Wisconsin. So a lot of mixtures like that. Sometimes I work a little bit on the, on the sustainability side of that too. So I look at things like how harvesting or certain kinds of harvest removals might be affecting sustainability, like sawlog harvest versus poultry harvesting, uh, and looking at issues like how much uh, woody debris is left behind, how much uh, nutrient is left behind to cycle, uh, and long-term sustainability and productivity. So I'm also a, a PI on our long-term soil productivity study that installation that we have here in Missouri that I inherited from Dr. Felix Ponder. Uh, and recently, I started a study working with Dr. Lauren Pyle here in our unit uh, that deals with uh, uh, mitigating compaction and log landings uh, to try to establish some pollinator habitat uh, to provide some sort of useful habitat for pollinating insects uh, uh, during the times when those landings aren't being used as landings. That's a little bit about what I do. So, John, you've covered a really broad range of research. And I know one thing that Brad and I have really been interested in is your work on woodlands and savannas. Part of this comes up because uh, we've had uh, listeners go, can you do something on woodlands and savannas, um, more of these open forest systems? And, and we've also had this conversation, I know, with your colleague, Dan Day, in terms of just broadly, sometimes as foresters, we paint ourselves into a box and we say, we're all about managing timber, but <laughs> silviculture really is much broader than that. And it can be managing, as you know, forest vegetation of all sorts for all different kinds of purposes. And so that's really, I think, where that woodland part comes in. So thinking about that, uh, what do you think silviculture brings to the table in terms of woodlands, savannas, open forest system types of restoration and management? Boy, Greg, you know, I think we bring so much to the table that I think is so important uh, in managing for woodlands and savannas. Um, and it's interesting, you, you bring up the, the box that we sometimes put ourselves into. And it's interesting because most silviculturists that I work with don't put themselves in that box. They look at managing woodlands and savannas uh, as a really interesting silvicultural challenge and uh, embrace that. The people that often put us in the box are outside of forestry or silviculture. I've had conversations, for example, with ecologists. Uh, when we get excited, we start talking about woodlands and savannas, and I say something about a stocking chart, for example, and they say, whoa, whoa, stop right there. <laughs> <laughs> about growing timber. 
I said, I know it's not about growing timber. I get that. And it makes me realize that sometimes others are putting us in that box. But I think we offer a lot. Um, there's a couple of things that I think of that we offer that I don't see sometimes coming from other disciplines. And one is we really spend a lot of time thinking about growing space. So thinking about that crown volume and that root volume below ground that's uh, that's uh, being occupied by those trees. And, you know, trees are the largest plants in our savannas and woodlands. They, they have large their large size and large biomass, and they tend to control the microenvironment in them. They're controlling the availability of light. And to some extent, they're going to control the availability of water in the soil because trees are the ones that really take up a lot of water. Any farmer will tell you that if they have trees growing along their crop uh, borders, that those trees are taking up a lot of water. So they're affecting that, and they're even affecting even nutrient distribution. Mm-hmm. So the trees are really important. So even though in our woodlands and savannas, we place a lot of emphasis on the ground flora and that understory, that's really, really important. The diversity of that's really, really important. Um, It's it's often our trees that are influencing that environment. So one very important tool that I think we bring, and and I know we'll talk about this quite a bit, is is, uh, some form of stand density diagram like those produced by Reinecke. I'm familiar with stocking charts produced by Gingrich. And I think that's a really important tool for helping us look at growing space and how much growing space is occupied uh, by these trees. And I think everybody, all of our listeners are familiar with, with most of these um, stand density diagrams. But, you know, they on them, you'll find on one axis, there'll be some measure of basal area. On another axis, there'll be some measure of the number of trees per acre. On another axis, will ha- include the, the average size or diameter of the trees, and then that combination will allow us to determine the percent stocking on the Gingrich chart, which would be uh, the amount of growing space occupied. So those are really important for understanding how much growing space is occupied. No, I was going to say, and I, I, I think that's a really important point because the um, because we've had some, so the stocking charts can be applied outside of traditional forest management which has implications for wildlife management for all sorts of things besides what we're talking about right now. So I think it's a really op- a big opportunity for the future. I think you're absolutely right, Brad. I think that's, that's spot on. And I think it's re- a really important tool. And it's something that um, we are very familiar with in forestry and we can help others understand how they use that tool that may not have our traditional background, but it's very important for what they do. Yeah. Something else I wanted to bring up, and this might sound a little bit odd, is that I think foresters inherently are taught through our training for our education that we see, I'm going to call it forests in motion. And I think we're just very accustomed to thinking about things like seeds falling and germinating, trees beginning to grow, trees growing larger and starting to compete with each other for growing space. And you know, some trees are lost to mortality. Some trees are die from other, other causes. But we kind of see how forests are playing themselves out and growing over time. And it's just kind of normal for us to see that dynamic and that growth. Um, We see patterns in that. We look for certain uh, patterns and thresholds to occur. There are certain things we expect to happen over time. Uh, And so I think we're just so well trained at that. I, I work with other ecologists that... 
they kind of get those concepts, they understand them, but they often describe sometimes woodlands and savannas like they might be in some sort of stasis, like they're like the land equilibrium, that they're not going to change that much. But we know in forestry that things are changing all the time, and we're, we're really good at thinking about that and thinking about what kinds of disturbances uh, are needed to nudge forests in one direction or another uh, to, to bring about the desirable outcomes. So I think we're really skilled at that. And again, I'll, I'll invoke the, top, the stocking chart again and, and just mention that you know, we also use that stocking chart as like a roadmap. We know how stand development will take place. We can plot that on the stocking chart. We can kind of predict where things are going. So for example, if we if we thin a stand down to the B level on a stocking chart, we know that it's going to head towards the A level. And it, as it does that, our average diameter is going to increase, our basal area is going to increase. The number of trees per acre is likely to decrease. And so we know how things are going to play themselves out uh, on a stocking chart. So those are a couple of areas that I think that we really, really have a lot to bring to the table. So maybe just a little background as we kind of dive into some of this stuff. So how would I know when we go into meetings and we talk about barren savannas, woodlands, that it's kind of this continuum, but how, how do you, how do you define those? Yeah. So I, I guess in simplest terms, though, I think the way to think about them is, 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 as you mentioned, they have a structural component. So structure is part of that definition. Uh, the other thing that I think is really important is composition. So there are certain plants that are good indicators of that condition. So think of savannas as some sort of low density uh, type of structure, the very simple structure, probably just dominant trees. Um, most of those trees, as it matures, are going to become very large diameter because of the, of the openness in which they're grown, and they're going to have those large spreading crowns. So that's a way to think about their structure. And species are usually key species that are associated with that structure. So for the trees, we're going to think about bur oaks and post oaks, um, mainly because they're very adapted to fire and disturbances like that. Uh, the, the very open conditions created under that low density are going to allow uh, like C4 grasses, uh, things like uh, warm season, light demanding, drought tolerant grasses, loose stem, little loose stem, switchgrass, and so forth. Um, so those are the kinds of environments, structure and compositionally that we're looking for in that savanna. Um, uh, as that density increases, our, we think about our woodlands as having a little more in, of an intermediate density maybe 30 to 40 trees per acre. They're still fairly open crowned. So they have the pretty strong crown development or wide crown development, but we still maintain a somewhat simple structure. Maybe we have dominance and co-dominant trees in the woodland, maybe even some intermediate uh, uh, crown class trees. Diameter distributions in those tend to be a little more bell-shaped uh, in distribution. Mm -hmm. And our key species there, we might have white oaks, black oaks, post oaks, maybe some hickories. So we're going to have a, a variety of uh, tree species, oaks and hickories. Our grasses now are probably going to be the more of a cool season, a little more shade tolerant, like a C3 grass, and maybe like model brush. And we're going to have forbs and legumes that are that flower during the middle of the summer. Maybe they even produce seed in the middle of summer. Uh, normally when trees have leaves on, so they're so the idea is that, that these are probably occurring in these systems because of the openness of that understory. And then our forests, of course, are the high density ones. They're going to have hundreds of trees per acre. If you count all the small ones, they tend to be multi 
uh, tiered canopies with a distinct overstory, often with a distinct midstory and understory. Think like the reverse J diameter distribution that's very common in our forests. Uh, in terms of tree species, white oak, black oak, northern red oak are really common, hickories, but you're going to have many other tree species that will be in that mix as well, like red maple and so forth. And in the ground flora, it seems to be more dominated or, or indicated by the presence of a lot of spring ephemerals. And the reason why uh, these flowers are important is because they are flowering early in the spring prior to leaf out. So they're getting the light they need by flowering before the leaves are intercepting that. So that's kind of a good indicator of that forest condition, the plants that can persist under that kind of environment. So those are the kinds of things that we look for. And uh, you said, yeah, it's a, it's a continuum. You, and you're right. There are thresholds that we use operationally that we've been defining. And I'll, I'll just I'll mention a few of those. But one thing that I do need to point out, and I think you're, you guys are fully aware of this, is that the structure is so ephemeral in the absence of disturbances. Uh, that, that forest or woodland that's going to densify, and it might even mesify, meaning that it's, it not, not only will it become denser and move towards the A-level on the mm -hmm. stocking chart, but it may also start to have species like sugar maple and others come in uh, and, and to further change some of that composition. So some thresholds that we've been using are uh, we've been they're derived from some research that we've been doing. We've used some GLO information. We've used empirical studies where we're doing some prescribed burning. Um, but in general, we think of our our savannas as having maybe less than thirty percent stocking on the stocking chart. Our woodlands are going to range between about thirty and maybe seventy five percent stocking. We sometimes uh, separate open woodlands from closed woodlands, and the, the break line for those is that B level on the Gingrich stocking chart, because we know at the B level that's our that's our uh, our threshold of being fully mm -hmm. stocked, and once we get below that B level, there, we have to have canopy openings in order for to satisfy the stocking percentage, so that we know below B level down to about C that we're going to have some pretty big openings. And that's how we define our open woodlands. And our closed woodlands are going to be just above that B line to about 75%. And that 75% line was arrived through some uh, empirical studies, meaning that uh, uh, we have a study that's uh, been going on at University Forest Conservation Area in Southeast Missouri. And it was initiated in about 1950. And it has treatments that include annual burning and periodic burning, and they've done that for, what's almost 70 years now, so a long, long time. And we see that under those fire regimes, that stocking gets reduced down to about 75, 70 to 75% stocking. So just by using prescribed burning alone without any other thinning method, it's going to get down to about that 75%. It's really interesting that you um, are looking at this from kind of percent stocking standpoint, a lot of times, like I see those definitions from more of the ecological side and obviously they don't, they don't use those tools, so they don't look at that. And I think that's really helpful, especially from a forester standpoint, because as foresters, we understand that kind of those relative breakpoints on a stocking chart. So, so I really like that idea. And I was thinking too, when, when you were saying earlier that you know, as foresters, a lot of times we have a long-term perspective and we look at that change in the forest. 
um, over time. And I know that when we go into uh, a forest or a, a woodland or a savanna, we're always thinking about trying to understand that change over time. And so we're thinking about assessing that. And I think about that with woodlands and savannas, like how, what's the best way to assess those? A lot of times they might be degraded. And so we're looking at something that really isn't what we would like it to be. So uh, are there things that a forester could integrate into their cruises to try to assess some of this? You mentioned things like structure being very important, species composition, as well as that ground flora. Yeah, I think there's a lot of tools that we can incorporate, and there are tools that we're very familiar with. And one of the first tools I would use is any kind of ecological classification or soil uh, survey that you have to help you understand what the potential of any particular site is. Um, is the site inherently a woodland site? Is it inherently a music forest site? Those are kinds of information that you can get from those tools, and we're accustomed to using those. Um, uh, routine inventories, I think, are really important to do. In fact, that's why we've worked with uh, generating some of these stocking thresholds, because it does work with uh, routine uh, forest inventory types of information. It's the kinds of things we normally measure. We can measure things like canopy closure, and sometimes we do. We use densiometers to do that or some other methods. But, you know, sometimes those are um, difficult to use. And I know Greg or Brad, if you've had experience using densiometers, <laughs> three people go out in the same spot with the same densiometer and they get three different numbers. Yep. So sometimes those, those measurements are imperfect. So relating those back to normal metrics that we measure in the forest is important. Uh, a new tool that I think we need to be pretty good at is using our woodland indicator species list that we have. And most states produce these. I know Missouri has some wonderful guides that help us um, identify whether certain, identify the plants, number one, and number two, uh, they help us identify if they're woodland indicators or if they're forest indicators. And those are very helpful. And I've looked at some of the guides that you guys have in Wisconsin. I think you guys have some excellent guides. Um, that help you identify what species to look for, what are good indicators of a woodland condition or a savanna condition or a forest condition. So I think those are the kinds of tools that we need to become more familiar with as foresters and use. Sometimes foresters are not the best botanists. Mm -hmm. so getting together with our friends in, in botany or ecology is really important for us to help us learn more about those species, help uh, learn how to identify them so that we can become better at what we do. I think. Uh, it's important for us as we do our inventories to pay a lot of attention to things like uh, the crown architecture and how the crown is spreading. And is, is it a good indicator of open grown conditions? Um, or is the stand, like you mentioned, Greg, a little degraded and maybe it hasn't been managed as a woodland and it's become a, a kind of a dry, uh, it looks like a forest in structure, but it's, it still has woodland indicator plants in it. Um, and if we can spot that and identify that, those are, you know, those, those are the kinds of clues that we need to look at to, to help us decide that we need to do some restoration or something in that work. Yeah. What, what I always think is really fascinating about this part of it is that as foresters, we kind of get involved in that part where uh, um, another manager, a landowner, someone says, I'd love a savanna or woodland here, and we're staring at a forest. And so we have to, and so there comes that creativity of, okay, how are we going to take this site and turn it into that? 
And so I know, you know, we know that fire plays a role, but what are the tools that we kind of use in that situation? Yeah, so I'll, there are a lot of really important tools. And I, I know most people think about fire and drip torches as being really important. But I, I again, I, I emphasize looking at your, your species composition and using your woodland indicator plants or savanna indicator plants to identify that. Sometimes, Brad, you may not be able to manage that, um, at least compositionally as a savanna. We could probably do so from a structural standpoint, but maybe the composition isn't right. And sometimes um, we have to work with our landowners to get them to understand that. But again, I, I really also emphasize using a tool like a stocking chart is a, is a really good way of identifying how much growing space is being occupied in that stand and uh, what I might need to do to that stand in order to adjust its stocking appropriately for the type of composition I'm trying to manage for. So it goes beyond just the drip porches and the fire. The fire is the fun part, but I think there's also that component of, of uh, uh, forestry and, and the technical side that I think is really important to apply to be good stewards. Yeah. Um, there, there does come a time, though, when we need to regenerate our even our savannas and woodlands. And I yeah. think that's something that we don't think about a lot. And under that scenario, it's... As far as I can see, we need to have some time period at a, at least at a sort of a stand level or a management unit level where it will undergo an early successional uh, stage to try to get some of that regeneration. And that means things like removing fire from that system for some period of time to allow that um, the oak advance reproduction that naturally accumulates under woodlands or even savannas to then start to recruit. We need that fire-free interval for that to happen. So that's something that's really important to take place. John, I've always uh, wondered about that question you talked about um, in terms of considering regeneration, because I find like I've been in conversations with our wildlife biologists or ecologists, and they're really focused on the restoration point. But I'm like thinking, but long-term, how are you going to recruit and maintain new trees over time. Maybe that's just the way foresters think. So what I hear you saying, we have to be thinking about that and establishing regeneration, but also allowing it to recruit. So that may uh, constitute changes in that fire interval. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, Greg, this is what foresters, I think, bring to the table. It's that forestry in motion. We're always thinking about that. We're always thinking about where the next forest or woodland is going to be coming from. And so, yes, we, we do need to have a fire-free interval to allow that recruitment to take place. And there's a, a wonderful paper that uh, Mary Arthur was the first author, but it included co-authors like Dan Day. Uh, Dave Loftus was on that. Uh, uh, there were a few others. Uh, Heather, Heather Alexander, I believe, was on that paper as well. And it's called something like the Oak Fire Hypothesis, but it does an outstanding job of talking about the life cycle of oaks and how you do need that fire-free period. And it might be uh, a minimum of, say, maybe 10 years, could be as long as 30 years, but that allows that recruitment to take place of a, of a significant number of, of trees that will escape future top kill by the next prescribed burden so that we can have that woodland in the future. So that's that part of that, that, that recruitment stage that's so important. And so we need to think about that. And I think 
Uh, we need silvicultural systems for woodlands and savannas to ensure that at the landscape scale that we're going to provide that future crop of trees or so forth that that are going to will modify that that environment to make that woodland diverse and and provide those uh, ecological benefits that we wanted to do. So yeah, it's, it's it's a great question, and it's it's the question that foresters should be asking, and it's the conversation that we should be having with with others that are interested in the, in the restoration and management of woodlands and savannas. So that's an important frontier, I think, for us. For right, and I'm I'm gonna back us up just a bit too, because I was thinking about the stocking chart thing, and Brad will be really happy. I'm going back to stocking charts again, and. And I know that um, you and your colleagues, um, Dan Day and Callie Schweitzer have a paper out and we can put it in the show notes and it has some of those modified stocking charts yes. that I think would be really helpful for um, foresters in looking at stands, where they're at and restoring them to certain structure, whatever that target is. But I, my question around that revolves with a lot of times we talked about these uh, stands that have become more dense and forested and say, we look at the stocking chart and we find where we really want to back that structure off to maybe the B line or, or even lower um, than that. Is fire the tool to do that? Or is it need to be combined maybe with some other type of overstory manipulation like thinning. So what do we know about kind of that combination of where fire is useful or where we need to employ both fire and uh, uh, manipulation or thinning of the overstory? Oh, that's a, that's a really great question, Greg. And yeah, so our research with using prescribed fire demonstrates that using fire alone, especially in a high density, uh, woodland condition. Um, using prescribed fire within the parameters that we would do a normal prescribed burn is only going to re remove, well, you know, maybe 10 or 15% of the stocking. It's going to uh, leave a stand that has pretty high stocking. And most of the trees that are top killed by fire are generally going to be less than four or five inches in diameter. So fire alone will not reduce the stand density uh, sufficiently uh, under our conditions that we normally would employ in a prescribed bird. Now, I mean, if we burned on a, a red flag day or something like that and had a, a high amount of mortality, yeah, we could, we could really mm -hmm. reduce the, the stocking of the stand, but often um, that's counter to our objectives and we might be losing trees that we want to keep. We might be keeping trees we want to lose. And so that doesn't always work well. And that's where we can then employ thinning methods, much like we do in forests, to then create that, that desirable um, stocking level and structure that we want to create in that woodland. So coupling prescribed burning with thinning operations, I think it's a really powerful combination to help us uh, achieve those uh, target structure levels uh, that will in turn help us uh, with some of the compositional goals that we have. And I think you mentioned earlier that the 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 density of these stands, the savannas and woodlands would have been pretty variable across big areas. So how could we, if we're doing that, we're going in, we're thinning these stands, reducing the canopies, how can we incorporate that into our prescriptions? There's a lot of opportunities, I think, to, to 
uh, implement variable thinning uh, in our stands, I think we can be very creative with it as well. So, um, you know, at the stand level, we might have some sort of stocking goal that we're trying to achieve. But if we're working in that stand and we're, and we're near like a, a natural drainage, for example, we know that historically those served as natural fire breaks. And so it's likely that you'll have a higher stocking or density level in association with the stream channel, for example. Um, there might be other patches of your stand that are a little more open. Those might be places, uh, a little more level, I should say, and those might be places where you might uh, reduce the stocking a little, a little uh, lower. Um, stocking charts, the nice thing about them is we can translate those into marking guides uh, in terms of basal area. We can go out with prisms, we can spin prisms and, and look at how we're affecting the basal area and therefore some, of the, some metric of stocking. Uh, in that stand as we move along. So I think we can translate those things into really helpful guides that we can apply in the field. So, and I've, and I've even seen some stands where you move along and, and maybe maybe the instruction was, that's, move, that's, that's thin everything to about 40 uh, square feet per acre of basal area, but the tree sizes might vary across that stand. And if you get into a patch of small diameter trees, uh, they're gonna have a higher stocking uh, at at that basal area rate than when you get into larger trees. And so you can get some variation, even if you have the same, say, basal area threshold, just by having different sizes of trees in your stand. I like that idea of what you said, John, of responding to maybe the topography and the soils and what's going on uh, within the stand, because there would have been sort of that natural variation that Brad's talking about um in terms of fire disturbance based on some of those things and uh, i think we could take advantage of that and that's as you said where that creativity comes in absolutely i think there's a lot lot of opportunities for creativity uh, and novel thinking uh, that we can apply to our woodlands and savannas i have a question i think about when we're talking about thinning right now and manipulating that overstory. And I know we've done a few of these different projects around the state. And sometimes when we open that overstory and we throw that light onto the forest floor, things go crazy um, in terms of growth. Is it important to be thinking about that? Kind of like what's the sequence of these treatments um, and maybe getting a handle on what's on that in that understory before putting a lot of light in that environment? Yeah, absolutely. You certainly want to get a really good understanding of the, of the ground floor you have and also on the advanced reproduction. Um, and this is also where site quality, I think, comes into play. Sites of high, uh, high quality um, can be woodlands and maybe historically were, were woodlands, but they also, when you have a site of high quality, high site index, for example, um, those also tend to be the stands that produce a, a real profusion of oak stump sprouts and so forth, so that when you do open that stand up, you now you're dealing with a lot of sprouts and oak reproduction rather than some of the ground floor that you're trying to, to cultivate. So the way I like to think about it is that um, um, I like to use those tools like the ecological site classification or a soil survey to help me understand uh, where that condition is going to produce lots of sprouts. And under that condition, I might be thinking of using some of my shade to control that sprouting. 
Um, on, the, on the contrast, if I'm in a drier site, uh, my soil survey indicates it's a very charity site with low water holding capacity. Um, uh, it, I might open that stand up more because I know that the response is going to be slower. Uh, the growth is going to be slower and I'm going to be able to hold that some of that ground floor without shading it out with my stump sproutings for a longer period of time. So I think we can be pretty clever about how we think about uh, this, the degree of openness in our woodlands and savannas and, and use that, uh, use some of our knowledge that we have from other things that we've done to, to help with that management. Yeah. I have seen that kind of just putting that thought into it work very well. I know uh, with some of our managers who have looked at doing, you know, herbicide treatments um, to try to get a handle on some of that vegetation before manipulating the overstory and then thinking about how that all fits in with the sequence of the fire, uh, I think really would helps with success. Yeah, and you're right. Herbicides do play a role. We do, we do use a lot of herbicides to control some of that sprouting, you know, especially with, with sort of the medium diameter stems that we might be thinning in part of that um, woodland treatment, for example. And so, yeah, I think they also play a role in helping us reduce some of that sprouting. Absolutely. That's a good point. And it sounds like as a forester, it's not a one and done, right? Like I'm not saying here, we, we reduced your density to 50%. Here's your savanna. So it sounds like, yeah, that's just the beginning. That's not that's the end. correct. And uh, it's like any other kind of forest that we're tending. We always want to go back in and, and keep checking on that stand. We want to keep doing some treatments in that stand. Uh, we might be burning frequently early on in sort of that restoration phase, but we may move into a maintenance phase where we're burning less often. Uh, but we still want to be going in and checking uh, just like we would in any other kind of traditional forestry application that so you're right. It's not a it's not a one and done. It's a continual uh, continual process that we that we do. Greg, this reminds me, Greg, of some of the oldest plans I saw in in our files when I was in the field. And you would pull it out for a landowner, and and it would basically have two things: don't burn and don't graze. And it sounds like now, and this is where I'm going to lead to it. So it sounds like we're embracing fire. What about grazing? Well, that's a great question. And Dan Day and I have talked about that for a long, long time. And uh, yeah, I think grazing historically played or even browsing maybe played a very a very important role historically in shaping our, our woodlands and savannas. And um, I think there's a there's a lot of opportunity to look at that, say from a research perspective and an operational perspective to see how it how we can reintroduce that effect it's a, it's a little bit hard to quantify that effect historically um, but it's been a, a topic that's been on our minds for a long time and, and trying to understand that and I know Dan has has worked with others uh, uh, who have been interested in using even uh, cows or other livestock uh, in grazing as a way of a uh, surrogate of providing uh, you know some of the other grazing that may have happened with uh, with bison and so forth in the past or elk even. So yeah, it's really, really interesting question. A lot of opportunity to, to learn, a lot of new things to discover, I think. To me, it feels like this is kind of singing the same song, but it's, here's a place that we can use creativity in forestry. So we're not doing the same old things. Here's a place where you can actually do something new. Yeah, we need to embrace that opportunity. It's a lot of fun. 
it's very interesting stuff. I, I think some of the forestry that I've done here in Missouri has been been really, really fascinating. I didn't anticipate that when I started my career, but it's really, uh, really a lot of new things to think about and do. There's a lot of frontiers left in silviculture. <laughs> John, we had just talked about grazing, and I was just really curious if you've ever seen where a stand that maybe is degraded that we're trying to get back into a woodland savanna situation. And maybe we do that assessment you talked about of the ground floor and it's just not there. Have you seen examples where people try to reintroduce that? So not only the trees, but actually the ground flora? Yes. And so that's becoming a topic of greater importance. In fact, uh, uh, right here in my office, uh, we have a forest technician named Dakota Maddox, who's working with uh, uh, Dr. Lauren Pyle and also with Dr. Ben Knapp here at the University of Missouri. He's, he's actually has a, a woodland project that takes place in a conservation area that's about an hour east of Columbia. Um, that includes doing some seeding by native, uh, native uh, woodland indicators. They've collected seed from some other very intact woodlands and savannas from nearby. And they're actually doing some experiments with with doing that seeding to see if they can reintroduce or, or augment the, the composition uh, in those woodlands that are trying to restore. So yeah, it's a it's a really great idea and really great opportunities for 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 looking at that restoration. So not just the trees, but see if we can reintroduce some of the native plants. Mm-hmm. There are plenty of areas that are degraded um, that have been used for agriculture and so forth. Um, either have been grazed or even have been under cultivation at some point in the past, and they off they lose that seed bank, and so it's a uh, it's an interesting idea to see if we can reintroduce some of those species back. So yeah, there's some experiments that are taking place. I'm sure there's lots of other experiments taking place across the country too. So I think we'll be learning more and more about that in the near future. I know John that you've got um, some broad experience, not just in oak, hickory type of woodland savanna, but in other forest systems, and we have listeners, obviously, that maybe aren't in a specific oak hickory area, but they might have some type of open forest system that they're managing. So would you say some of these concepts that we've talked about today would apply more broadly to managing open forest systems? Yeah, I do. I think in broad concept, these are broadly applicable ideas. I think they will work in our open pine systems that we might see in the south or southeast. Um, they probably work in some of the pine systems we see in northern Wisconsin, some of the barrens that, that are up there. Mm-hmm. They, I think they work very well in those systems as well. So yeah, I think it's broadly applicable. Um, it's like you said, Greg, it's just some of the species might vary a little bit and we can get some local species information from some of our uh, experts in the states that we're working in. Um, but again, some of those same principles about light and light availability, uh, avail- <laughs> light availability um, are really important for understanding some of that composition. And that that's, translates to a lot of differences. And I kind of like this whole process. We talked about the importance of, again, stand assessment, looking at that structure, but in these systems, the importance of uh, looking at the ground flora and maybe becoming a little bit more of a botanist, as we said, um, to understand that. 
and then using some of the traditional silvicultural tools like stocking charts in maybe a less traditional manner uh, to help guide, you know, where we're going in the stand. So I think, I think that's really cool and can probably be applied to a lot of different systems. John, I'm curious. So you've worked in these systems and you've walked, worked across this gradient. So there, there probably is a segment of our audience. I'm going to channel that little bit of the production end of our audience. And so they would say, hey, wait, we're taking areas you know, that could be producing timber and we're putting them into this. Is there a, and I, I think about the woodlands kind of example, are there places where you could have production and kind of restoration at the same oh, time? Absolutely. And I think there are great opportunities for managing woodlands in that way. In fact, you know, doing woodland management with prescribed burning uh, at our, on a regular basis and some of the other thinnings that we do that may not be commercial, for example, it costs money. And if we can manage our woodlands in such a way that they produce the biodiversity and uh, other features that we would like for them to produce ecologically and produce timber, I think that's a win-win situation. And so I, I really enjoy those opportunities to think about um, silvicultural systems for doing just that, Brad, where we're, we're expecting to have some sort of timber crop that's going to help us meet our ecological objectives as well as some of the commodity objectives. So yeah, that's really, uh, uh, that's really, I think, the direction that we need to be headed for. There are some systems where the productivity just wouldn't lend themselves to that. We can, and we can recognize that and understand that. But the majority of our woodlands are really quite productive historically and even even today um, in terms of producing dimension lumber and other products that we can use. So yes, we need to be we need to be thinking about that. And that's all part of that regulation that we can use and that it can be part of that regeneration uh, mindset that we have to think about how we can perpetuate not only that habitat but those commodities in the future. So we can have a, a savannah and whiskey barrels, you're saying. That's what I'm hearing. So that's or a woodland and, and that. So I'm I'm happy now. So that's good. Well, and a lot of uh woodland oak hickory management looks a lot like good oak management in terms of the techniques we need to regenerate and maintain those systems. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. That's absolutely right. So I think uh, our foresters should feel very comfortable working in this arena uh, because it's it, there's some real strong elements of familiarity. Well, I hope this uh, conversation that we had today is maybe an, an opportunity for foresters out there to jump into the, this world of woodland um, and savanna restoration. And I really appreciate our conversation with you, John, today to kind of go over some of the things that we should be thinking about in that process. Uh, so please keep up the good work in terms of the research, because we, as you said, we need more answers all the time. And feel free to come to Wisconsin and do work here because, you know, it's a good place. The invitation is open. We'll help you wherever you need that it. That sounds great. It's Greg and Brad, thank you so much for having me on today. It's been a real pleasure to visit with you and uh, yeah, to visit about woodlands and savannas as well as forests. And I look uh, forward to my trip, next trip up to Wisconsin to visit. With you. <laughs> yep. Thanks, John. Take care. Bye-bye.
That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, and share them with our listeners. So anything in the old coffee can this week, Brad? All right, let's see. So here's one. Uh, A listener, John, asks, I was wondering if you've ever thought about doing an episode about Oak Woodland or Savannah ecosystems. Well, what can I say, John? We were channeling your thoughts perfectly. This may be great news or a reason for concern for some of you that we're this close to what you're actually thinking. We'll let you be the judge. But we do have big news this week, right, Greg? I I was waiting for your big news, Brad. The big news, you heard about it last episode. The big news, it's here. We now have continuing forestry education credits available just for listening to Silvacast. So season three, every episode will have the capability or you have the option of of basically uh, listening and going going to our website, getting information and and getting credit for it. I think you got to take a quiz, though. Okay, so there's a little more than just (laughs) listening to it, right? So, yeah, you're right. You have to take a quiz, uh, but you can get all the information at our website. But it's fun. It, it's it's a hoot. Well, thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. Take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team, Haley Frater, our editor-in-chief, Noah LeMade, our IT master, Our theme music was by Paul Frater, and special thanks to UW-Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center.